Scripture today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and 14 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, good morning and uh, welcome. Hope you're doing well in the midst of uh, these joyful and challenging days. Again, I'm Tom. I think I've met each one of you, but if I have not, it's a delight to have you here this morning. So recently, I was having a conversation with a friend about our cultural and historical moment. You know, that's an interesting conversation. And uh, he looked at me square in the eyes, and he said these words, Tom, I don't feel I can trust anyone anymore. Uh, Hearing those transparent words, I found myself going, hmm. I kind of resonate with that sentiment. It is hard to trust these days, isn't it? We live in a time of heightened skepticism and growing mistrust, at least in my life, I have never experienced in its amplification. Uh, There are lots of reasons for this. Uh, One is the massive proliferation of online information and social media that brings this dizzying array of information to our fingertips in nanosecond timing. We know more and more every day that there are highly sophisticated algorithms driven by ideological frameworks and political agendas that seek to exploit our cognitive and our emotional vulnerabilities. We hear with much more frequency uh, and greater intensity and passion phrases like fake news and global information or misinformation campaigns. So one of the greatest questions of our cultural moment is, who can we trust? This is perhaps the most unsettling dilemma of our information age. It is a daily irony each one of us confronts. Never have we had so much information at our fingertips, and never before have we trusted so little of it to be true. In other words, the more information we have, it seems, the less trust we have in that information. Yet the challenge of discerning what is true and what is not is not restricted to our modern time. The first century, while it was not inundated in the information age like our time, was a pluralistic world with many, many competing ideologies and divergent truth claims. What was true? What was not true? 
who to trust, who not to trust, was also a big first century challenge. Sometimes I think we forget this, and it's in this skeptical historical context that the first century writer John emerges. And John boldly asserts some astonishing, jaw-dropping truth claims about Jesus of Nazareth. What were those audacious claims? Who did John say Jesus really was? These are the questions emerging in our text this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the New Testament, Gospel of John, chapter 1. Now, if you're with us last week, Pastor Andrew began on our campus here in Leewood, a series we have entitled, right, Across Our Campuses, The World Made Flesh. And we explored together last week the opening verses of John chapter 1. We observed how John intentionally echoes in verse 1 of his gospel the very first verse in the Old Testament in Genesis 1. Let me just parallel those for us. Genesis 1, 1 reads, and beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 1 reads, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John very emphatically, very intentionally repeats this refrain. And anchored in this refrain is a three-time repetition, which is very important in Scripture. In this opening verse, the Greek word logos, which is translated word in English. Now, John uses this word not to point us to some rational theory of everything that explains the universe as the Greeks envisioned it, but rather John does something radical. And that is he presents the Logos as a person who is the eternal God himself, the center of all and creator of all things. This is stunning. And sometimes the familiarity of it, familiarity of it, familiarity of it, we miss it. In this prologue, we're going to encounter more jaw-dropping truths as we look at our text. John is going to say this eternal Logos, this word, who he claims has actually come to this planet robed in flesh, bone, blood, and skin. And that is not all. John will say something more shocking. He will assert he himself has witnessed this firsthand. And when we slow down from our superficial familiarity, this is a lot for our hearts and minds to process. And if it is true, it is life-changing. So in this morning's text, I'd like us to grasp two life-changing truths declared by John, and this is it. Jesus, John says, is history's greatest miracle, and secondly, Jesus is our greatest hope. First, Jesus is history's greatest miracle. Look at me at verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you'll notice that literally John connects verse 14 with verse 1, and he moves beyond that, and he asserts three bedrock ideas about the Logos, the word Jesus of Nazareth. I'm going to highlight these quickly. First, notice notice the, uh, the language, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. This is the flow. First, the, world beca- the word became flesh. The eternal God took on human skin, flesh, and bones. This is a staggering claim. John does not blink 
In boldness, he says, in space-time history, the eternal God became human in Jesus of Nazareth. Let that sink in a moment. The brilliant late John Stott, which I encourage you to read everything he's written, marvels at this truth claim. He says, the Bible reveals a God who long before it even occurs to men and women to turn to him while they are still lost in darkness and sunk in sin, takes the initiative. He rises from his throne lays aside his glory, and stoops to seek until he finds them. Imagine the triune God stooping and seeking. Stunning. But that's what John says. The second bedrock idea here is that maybe is even more astonishing. John says here in verse 14, not only the word became flesh, the word dwelt among us. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. He says, Jesus, he got in the flesh, moved into our neighborhood. Now, the Greek word used here to translate the English dwelt is a theologically rich word. It is used throughout Scripture most often to describe a tent, a physical tent. So John's word choice and literary imagery here is that the eternal creator God stepped into time for a time, and if we want to be very literal, he pitched his tent on this planet, in the person of Jesus. In John's inspired words here, we hear the distant echoes of the Old Testament book of of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God's divine presence and power, if you remember, if you read the Old Testament, was manifest, and it was called the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. So John is saying, the word made flesh, his embodied skin, His bones, his blood is now God's tent of meeting. John is saying that the word made flesh is God's tabernacle. It is where the presence and power of God is manifest. Now, in his Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know?, I really like Mark Lowry, how he helps us marvel at the mystery of the flesh and blood miracle in Mary's loving arms in that Bethlehem moment. Let me give you just a couple of his lines. Mary, did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? Mary, did you know when you kissed your little baby, you kissed the face of God? And of course, if Mary kissed the face of God, incarnated in human flesh, then the divine presence and power of Jesus simply could not be hidden. So it is not surprising in John's logic He says, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. And third, we have seen his glory. This word glory is incredibly important. Glory throughout the Old Testament captures God's story. And it describes God's comprehensive and weightiness. Literally, the word means in Hebrew, weightiness. It is the multifaceted attributes of God's goodness, his his sense of deity, But here, John summarizes it in an interesting way. He summarizes, notice your text, describing the divine glory. He frames it in the rich, life-giving textures of grace and truth. It's important for us to realize that the gospel writers also present Jesus in the mundane, everyday normalcy of his glory of humanity. Jesus' glory was seen there too. Sometimes I think we miss this important truth. And keep it in mind as we walk through this gospel. The Bible, the gospel writers particularly present Jesus feeling things humans feel. Doing things humans do. Working in a carpentry shop. Eating, laughing, weeping. 
Jesus didn't have some halo around his head as he walked across the Jerusalem landscape. No spiritual luminescence when he walked down the street. Not at all. The gospel writers never say that. In fact, there is more indication that his accent, his Galilean accent, gave him away. And was viewed by the intellectual elite as sort of Hicksville. But there is also the stunning glory that sets Jesus apart. We'll see in this gospel, as we explore it, how John arranges his gospel around seven miraculous signs, pointing us to Jesus' true identity, his full divineness, his full human nature. For example, let me just give you a little bit. John will tell us Jesus turning water into wine, healing the sick, feeding 5,000 people with a little boy's lunchbox. Walking on the water, raising the dead, and after stilling a powerful storm on the Sea of Galilee, the awestruck disciples say this, who is this that the wind and sea obey his word? John is saying from the very beginning, and keep this in mind, I was there. We were there. Jesus of Nazareth, he lived with us, we saw his glory, we received his grace. And John is saying to his readers, I know, in the first century, like our 21st century, these are jaw-dropping truths. But he's saying, you can trust my words, they are absolutely true. Because I have encountered the ultimate truth, not in proposition, but in a person. The person of truth. And later in his epistle, one of his epistles in the New Testament, 1 John, he will assert this again, saying of Jesus, we heard him, we saw him with our own eyes, we looked upon him, we touched him with our hands. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, fully God and fully human, is history's greatest miracle. This is where John starts. And it overwhelms our minds, doesn't it? But he doesn't stop there. It also invites the deepest longings of our hearts. John wants us to know, from the start, throughout his entire gospel, Jesus is not only history's greatest miracle, Jesus is our greatest hope. This is where he goes in verses 16 through 18. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has made him known. Here in verses 16 through 18, John more fully ushers us into the mystery of the word made flesh and the deep meaning of it for your life, my life, and our world. And I want to press more fully into the incarnation in this way, for you and me. Two hopeful truths that I think are vital for us to grasp because Jesus came in the flesh. First, in Jesus, God came for our world. In Jesus, God came for our world. This is really important to John. Jesus' incarnation, by its very nature, declared this material world really matters to God. Now, this is also more stunning in the first century than you imagine, because in the first century, John is writing against the headwinds of the main thinking of the day because of Plato, the Greek philosopher Plato, and his lasting influence that diminished the material world and elevated the non-material world. John has more intellectual headwind in the first century here than we do in our late modern world. Don't miss that. John boldly challenges that cultural assumption. The incarnation of Jesus tells us 
Without a shadow of a doubt, friends, there's no devaluing of everyday material world we dwell in. Quite the contrary. John is saying, Jesus, the word, became flesh. He dwelt among us, not apart from us, but in the middle of ordinary life. Do we grasp this? From the opening verses of the Bible to the very, very end, the story of God we encounter is the one true God who greatly loves his broken material world that he has designed and made. Now let's remember back in Genesis 1, John is connecting us to Genesis 1, God repeatedly declares that the material world is good. It is good. That includes the stuff of this created world, like the trees and flowers and birds and animals and all that. And yes, our physical bodies of flesh and blood. We know this even after humankind rebelled against God in Genesis 3. In Genesis 6, God refused to give up on his world. There's this fascinating inter-Trinitarian conversation in Genesis like, should I just give up and start over? No. Grace emerges. Instead of that, God decides out of his gracious love and perfect wisdom to redeem and restore his broken world fully one day. And in Jesus, God came to rescue and redeem this badly broken material world. T.F. Torrance writes these words. Listen carefully. I think he gets it right. He says, the very act of assuming our flesh, the word Jesus, sanctified and hallowed it. For the assumption of our sinful flesh is itself atoning and sanctifying action. Did you hear that? How could it be otherwise when he, the Holy One, took on himself our unholy flesh? Now think with me for a moment what that means. The very act of Jesus assuming human flesh like you and me, the word sanctified and hallowed our material bodies and our material world. Jesus, by his incarnation, sanctified or set apart the goodness of our humanness the goodness of our material world, and that all human life matters. The incarnation declares to us, Jesus is a cosmic redeemer, a cosmic restorer. Jesus' rescue mission is not only to save souls, as vitally important as that is, but also to usher in his kingdom fully and transform our entire world. In the last book of the Bible, we see this when Jesus, in his glorified, risen state on the throne, says, behold, I am making all things new, not all new things. When Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new, think about the scope of that for a moment. Think about the importance of that in your life. What Jesus' incarnation initiated in this world is almost unfathomable. What it pointed to is stunning. What it will mean for our world ultimately one day when his kingdom will be fully consummated. Now C.S. Lewis, as he often did, got this right. And uh, I, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And one of my favorites, again, is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you've read this, you know that he captures this amazing uh, transformation of the world because of the uh, Christ figure, Aslan. So if you remember the story, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy find themselves in the world of Narnia, right? It's a world put under a spell by a white witch, a horrible white witch, where it's always winter and never Christmas, right? But the good news, as the story goes, is Aslan, again, the Christ figure, brings new life and hope to Narnia, right? 
And I love this picture in, as the book progresses, uh, Alan, Aslan takes Susan and Lucy to Witch's Castle, if you remember. As they walk along this broken world, they encounter stone statues. These are petrified beings under the white witch's dreadful curse. So Aslan, the Christ figure, as he walks and establishes his new kingdom, breathes on them. And what happens? There is a melting. It's the picture, especially you see it in the movie, that brings them back to life. But not just them. Everything around them. Lewis describes the comprehensive transformation of Aslan this way. He says, everywhere the statues were coming to life. The courtyard no longer looked like a museum. It looked more like a zoo. Creatures were running after Aslan and dancing around him till he was almost hidden in the crowd. Instead of all that deadly white, the courtyard was now in a blaze of colors. That's exactly right. In his literary way, Lewis speaks the truth what John is speaking. The incarnation of Jesus declares that all of God is for all of the world. Jesus' incarnational ultimate mission is not to rescue us from this broken world and get us to heaven, but ultimately to bring heaven to earth. And his prayer, he taught us to pray, validates that. When Jesus said, pray this way, what? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In her great hymn, brilliant, she's just a brilliant writer, Maltby Babach, uh, uh, wrote, This is My Father's World. It's one of my favorite hymns. And uh, she speaks with such theological clarity. She says, This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. And what? And the earth and heaven will be one. Jesus, the Word made flesh, is a cosmic redeemer. One day he will make all things new, and heaven and earth will be one. But Jesus is also a personal Savior. Jesus put on human flesh to make us new, to give us life. Jesus came into the world because he came for us, his beloved image bearers. And that's the second truth of the incarnation. We need to grasp. In Jesus, God came for us. Let's think about that for a moment. God came for you and me, his beloved yet broken crown of creation. Think how much God values you because of that. So much so that he became one of us to rescue and restore us, to lavish on us here, as John says, grace upon grace. Philip Yancey, who is a wonderful writer, describes the mystery of the incarnation. Hit him one moment. He's a guy who uh, loved aquariums. I do too. He had a saltwater aquarium. And he was tending his fish, he describes, in one of his books. It's a saltwater aquarium. And he's standing outside their little world, and he's trying to feed them, care for them. And every time he gets close to them, they scatter into the background into the darkness out of fear. And he said, basically, when I saw that in my face, there's no way he could convince these fish of his love for them and concern for them, no matter what he did. Yancey concludes, for him to do that, he would have to become one of them. And he makes the comparison of God becoming human in Jesus. And he captures in his prologue, or in, in John's prologue, these words. He says, the God who created matter took shape within it. As an artist might become a spot on a painting or a playwright or character in his own play, God wrote a story using real characters on the pages of real history. The word became flesh. 
but we must see in this marvelous act of love, Jesus came not only to relate to us, but to die for us. When John says here in verse 17, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, we get a glimpse here of the full redemptive mission of Jesus. Let's not forget, John will point out, he was born as a baby in a Bethlehem manger to die on a Jerusalem cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins and to raise again, defeating death in a Jerusalem tomb. Jesus was born to die. And Jesus had to be fully God and fully human to rescue us. The Apostle Paul captures the logic of that in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, He, God the Father, made him God the Son, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. Why? That we might become the very righteousness of God. In Jesus, God came for us, not only to save us from our sin, but don't miss this, but to be known deeply by us. The Christian faith is stunning when you stop to think about it. It makes the audacious claim that God of the universe desires to be known by us. Let that sink in to your heart. There's no other religion or faith that I know that points to a God who goes to such great length as the Christian God to be known by us. And the incarnation declares this. Only when God becomes human, like us, can we know him. And it is God himself, the eternal creator God, that takes the initiative to be known by us, by you. Christian psychiatrist Kirk Thompson, who was with us last fall, reminded us again of this important truth, that we enter the world looking for the one looking for us. And the incarnation of Jesus declares definitively that that is not a wish dream. That is the truest truth of the universe. Because he is looking for you. He is looking for me. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice to me how John ends the prologue here in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word known is really impregnated with wisdom and truth. It has the idea, and if you look at other translations, you'll hear, you'll see words like explain or reveal, and that's part of it, but there's more here. To make known is the idea of a comprehensive revealing of someone's narrative, their story, of God's story. So we may say, translating this a little tight, Jesus is the narration of the triune God. The incarnate Jesus is the ultimate disclosure of the one true triune eternal God, the God who longs to be known by us, to be intimate with us. John is saying Jesus has made God known to us. And if we long to know God, what God is truly like, John is saying take a close look at the incarnate Jesus. It's the best way to do that. And later in his gospel, you will notice we're going to encounter this. Jesus says these words in John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. Jesus, God's incarnate son, loves you so much. So much that he left the heavenly throne room to come for you. That's how much he loves you and delights in you and desires to know you and to be known by you. The incarnation declares the hopeful truth that all of us are his beloved who embrace him. God 
Almighty God, the eternal creator, <laughs> longs to be intimate with you. That's stunning. And when God became human, he became present to us in our pain, our present, our struggles, our tears, our hopes. In other words, John will say, God gets you. He gets you this morning. He knows everything about you. He knows what you're going through. And he loves you beyond what you can ever imagine. That love will take eternity to grasp. John says right away in his wonderful gospel, Jesus is history's greatest miracle, but he is your greatest hope. And when he ends his book, he connects the prologue with the ending, and he tells us why he wrote this book. In John 20, he says that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John wants us to go somewhere with him. He wants us to see Jesus as we see God himself, and he wants us to put our trust in him. So will you do that? Will you place your complete trust in him? Will you embrace him as your personal Lord and Savior? Will you experience the life and forgiveness God gives you? And again, you'll notice the emphasis on grace. Right away, John says, none of us can be good enough to deserve it. Our new life in Christ is a gift of grace. We can't miss this. How powerful this is. You see all the emphasis on grace in this text. And will you draw near to him, the one who delights in you, who wants to know you and be known by you? Will you draw near to him as he has drawn near to you? Will you follow him, learn from him, and become his apprentice? And I think John will say over and over again in his gospel and describe for us of the joy of sharing our faith with others. The gospel is good news not only for us, but for the world. And there are people hungry to hear truth today like I have never experienced. But truth that is found ultimately in a person. Truth they can really, truly trust. And as a church family this year, we're going to focus, as Andrew said, on the joy and privilege of sharing our Christian faith with others in our Monday worlds. In our places of volunteering, in our study, in school, in our workplaces. All those relationships we have in places, God calls us to be his witness throughout the week. And I want to encourage all of us to engage in the Form.Life and the E90 initiative. 90 seconds each day for nine people. I couldn't be more excited about the possibilities and the joy it brings to our life and it furthers Jesus' kingdom. And I want to encourage you to really embrace that with all of us across our campuses. So who can we trust? What is truth? These are the questions John introduces us with in a skeptical age in the first century and a skeptical 21st century age. Can we trust John's words written so long ago? John says we can trust it because he was there. Fascinating, he ends his entire gospel with these words. This is a disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Jesus is history's greatest miracle, and Jesus is your greatest hope and mine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the richness of your word. And Father, often because many of us have read this text,
there's a superficial familiarity. So Holy Spirit, bring the rich truths of the word made flesh into our lives, into our community, into our world. We pray this in Jesus, the greatest miracle and the greatest hope. In his name.